0: Section 22 of Volume 1 of Symbolism by Johann Adam Moeller Translated by James Burton Robertson This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Subheading 14 Doctrine of the Protestants on Justification and Sanctification The notion which the Protestants form of justification is thus briefly defined in the formulary of Concord. Quote, the word, quote-unquote, justification signifies the declaring any one just and acquitting him of sins and the eternal chastisement of sins on account of the justice of christ which is by god imputed to faith Unquote. and it expressly says our justice is not of us with these declarations calvin perfectly coincides justification in the protestant sense is a judicial act of god whereby the believing sinner is delivered from the punishment of sin, but not from sin itself. While Catholics teach that on one hand the remission of sin, the debt as well as the penalty, and on the other hand positive sanctification, follows in a like way through the divine act of justification, the great difference between the confessions consists, accordingly, in this, that according to the Catholic doctrine, the justice of Christ in the act of justification is immediately appropriated by the believer, becoming part of his inward self, and changing his whole moral existence. While, according to the Protestant system, justice remains in Christ, passes not into the inward life of the believer, and remains in a purely outward relation to him, covering his injustice not only past, but still outstanding, since by justification the will is not healed. We therefore may say, according to Catholic principles, Christ, by justification, stamps inwardly and outwardly his living impress on the believer, so that the latter, though a feeble and imperfect, becometh yet a real copy of the type. On the other hand, according to the Protestant doctrine, Christ casts on the believer his shadow only under which his continued sinfulness is merely not observed by God. Hence the explicit remark of the formulary of Concord, that the faithful, on account of the obedience of Christ, are looked upon as just, although by virtue of corrupt nature they be truly sinners, and remain such even unto death. These avowals prove of themselves that the Protestants have adopted those notions of grace and justification which we point out above, subheading 13, as one-sided and erroneous. But the opposition between the confessions in this matter derives a stronger illustration from considering the following points, which show the wide practical consequences of this opposition. Concupiscence, which, as Catholics avow, still remains after justification, the mere incitement to sin, is represented by Protestants as sin in itself and indeed, as the yet subsisting original sin. While the distinction between the mere feeling of that incitement to sin, and the consent to the same, is rejected by them as unessential, nay, as untrue, it is precisely on this ground that they rest the assertion that justification consists in the mere declaration of the remission of sin, not in the purification from sin itself. Because original sin still subsists, and adheres even to the will. In like manner it is asserted that between venial and mortal sin there is no internal and essential difference. For, so the Protestants teach, all sins in themselves, whatever be their nature, accuse man in a like degree before the tribunal of God. All merit eternal death. Faith in the merits of Christ, according to them, constitutes the only decisive distinction between sinners in the eyes of God. When man believes, and so long as he believes, all his sins, so they teach, are mere venial sins. As, on the other hand, without this faith, none of his sins can be pardoned. For, in reality, unbelief is the only sin. These most astounding maxims involve in themselves the following consequences. If the justified man, considered in himself, be as much a sinner and as damnable as the unjust man, then no internal and essential difference as to moral being is recognized between the converted and the unconverted. The scriptural antithesis of the old and the new man, of the old and the new life, of the new creation, of the first birth, and of regeneration lose not only their point, but in a great degree their moral signification, subheading 29. The notion of penance whereby the transition from the one state to the other is brought about must be conceived in a one-sided, nay, totally mistaken sense, subheading 33. And the impressive language of holy writ, respecting the deliverance from sin wrought through Christ and the mortification, eradication, of sin in believers, Romans chapter 6 and chapter 8 verses 1 through 4 Is then nothing more than unmeaning bombast, nay, the occasion of the most deplorable and ridiculous self-delusion, but the ulterior consequences of the doctrine, that in those who believe in the merits of Christ all distinction between venial and mortal sin is effaced, will, in a subsequent part of this work, subheading 16, be made fully manifest. Here we shall cite some passages that will show to what subversion of morality a system leads that will make no essential distinction between the feeling of the incitement to sin and the willful consent to the same. As the former, as long as we live, is unavoidable, so the latter is represented to be simultaneous with it. And from this point of view of moral worthiness, the deed is made to be not more punishable than the most involuntary sensual enticement to the same. Thus Melancton appeals to the testimony of every Christian conscience, which saith to each one, that even the Christian has nothing less in his power than his own heart, whose entire emotions are unclean. Hence, the same Melancton proposes to Catholics the question, Do not the saints seek their own interest? And he is really of opinion that the saint the man truly justified before God, remains necessarily enslaved to vain glory, to avarice, and the like. Luther speaks of wicked lust, avarice, anger, immodesty, adding a significant etc., which are all to be found in the just man. Calvin, too, makes us acquainted with saints of this sort. A singular saint, forsooth, who seeks his own interest and not Christ's glory. Equally strange is the combination of ideas. When we are required to conceive an immodest or avaricious saint, For, according to the laws of logic, the predicate destroys the subject, yet what is the meaning of the words, when men speak of the covetousness, the avarice, the choler, and immodesty of saints? Do they mean thereby a stimulus inserted in the flesh, which incites them indeed to works of the flesh, but at last wearies itself out in unsuccessful efforts? Then we cannot understand how such idle, unsuccessful temptations can be denominated covetousness, avarice, choler, and immodesty. But if we imagine this stimulus to be victorious over the will, or its impulse to be consummated into an outward act? How can the conquered be called saints and just ones? Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 9 and 13. Such a confusion of language hath its grounds in the confusion of essentially different ideas, and we must marvel much when the identifying of what is most distinct, nay, most opposite in notion and in language, fails to produce in life also a corresponding identification. Having spoken thus far of the Protestant system of justification, it remains for us to notice their view of sanctification, for it would be in the highest degree unjust if we did not show that according to the Lutheran system, the renovation of sinful man, the moral change, in a word, sanctification, must attach to the confiding reception of the declaration of the forgiveness of sins. Man, conscious of so gracious, so unmerited a remission of sin, must, in thankful return for so great a benefit, earnestly strive to improve and to observe, with ever greater fidelity, the commandments of God. In the justified man, according to the same system, original sin, by the communication of the Holy Spirit, is weakened, though not extirpated, and in proportion, as it is weakened, sanctification increases. Calvin, approximating to the Catholic view, goes even so far as to confess that, as Christ cannot be divided, man in communion with Him must partake at once of justification and sanctification. Thus, whoever is received by God into His grace possesses thereby the spirit of the sonship through whose power the transformation into the likeness of God ensues. Pleasing as it is to witness this improvement in doctrine, and closely as it is connected with Calvin's representation of original sin and his description of the process of regeneration, yet an essential difference will ever be found between the two systems, Catholic and Protestant, including, under the latter, the Calvinistic view. For since a mere weakening, not an extirpation of original sin, is admitted, no essential moral difference, but a mere gradual one, can then be maintained between the old and the new man. But this is as much opposed to the doctrine of the Catholic Church as it is to the dignity of Christianity, to the notion of a new principle of life communicated by it, which in consequence supersedes the Old One, and to the most explicit declarations of Scripture. If the influence of Christ over man were merely confined to this, that the latter was a somewhat morally better, not quite a morally different, man from the heathen, then, in a strict sense, it were impossible to speak of sanctification, for both the heathen and the Christian would, in their inward life, be like. And differ only in their degree of discipline. The Catholic Church, above all things, insists on a radical internal change. Moreover, the difference consists in this that with the Protestant, the external relation to Christ is by far the most important thing, so that at this point of his spiritual life he can calmly sit down and, without advancing a step further, be assured of eternal felicity. Since, by what the Reformers call justification, his sins have been once forgiven, and, at the same time, the gates of heaven open to him. While the Catholic can obtain the forgiveness of his sins only when he abandons them, and in his view, the justified man, the man acceptable to God, is identical in every respect with the sanctified. Even with Calvin, forgiveness of sins is quite abstractedly the only ground for hope of salvation. And if he at length has penetration to perceive that justification and sanctification cannot be separated in the interior life, he yet divides them in his theory and deduces from one and the same thing different effects. Since he says that it is only by the declaration of God remitting sins that righteousness is acquired, and not by any sanctifying power, which together with the consciousness of such a remission, has been imparted. Hence it follows that even a minimum of real improvement, without which, according to Calvin, the certainty of being favored with grace cannot take place, would entirely suffice for salvation. To this statement of doctrine it will be well to subjoin some remarks, directed toward a deeper scientific appreciation of the Lutheran system the point to which we would here particularly direct attention, is the fact how well the doctrine of original sin couples with that of justification. How well the one prepares the way for the other. The former was so deeply engraven in the essence of man that the latter cannot extend beyond his surface. If original sin had been represented as so destructive to man, in order thereby to exalt the power of Christianity, so that it could be said, quote, Behold, though original sin has sunk so deep into the inmost core of human existence, yet Christianity sinks still more deeply. It penetrates into the lowest depths of the soul, and works healingly, and creates anew. If the power of the evil principle be great, that of the good principle is still greater, unquote. Then, this mistaken view of original sin ought to have been entirely excused as a theoretical error. But now it is taught its ravages are so frightful that they remain in the will, even of the regenerated. The disease under which we labor is so malignant that we cannot be radically cured of it, and, as we cannot, so we need not be. Hence Christ, our righteousness, is out of us. The unrighteousness in the old Adam is within us the righteousness in the new Adam out of us moreover the essence of original sin according to luther's expression recurs very evidently here if catholics teach that it is only in the case where the solicitation to sin proceeding from the flesh is with full consciousness entertained and consented to by the will that the real character of sin appears so the Lutherans and Calvinists, with unexampled obstinacy, assert that the solicitation, even when repelled with decided resistance, is in itself sinful. Let us weigh this doctrine well, and inquire whether evil be not then considered as something existing apart, independent of the will, and extraneous to it, and be not regarded as an essence. What else can be meant, when it is said, something evil in itself remains in man, and is yet evil, even when the will resists and overcomes it. Here the sinfulness, certainly, lies no longer in a perverted bent of the will, because the will in this instance cannot be perverted, and yet sin, that is to say original sin, is still in man. This is strikingly corroborated with the assertion, that we can be then only liberated from sin when we have put off our dear, quote-unquote, This, assuredly, is to conceive sin as something very substantial. And yet it is uncommonly difficult to conceive how Luther should have regarded sin as really something which, in the strict sense of the word, was an evil essence. Perhaps the following considerations may enable us to understand Luther better than he understood himself. Two facts above all are very remarkable. In the first place, it is asserted of God that he conceals from his eye the sins of believers, or regards these as just, though they be not so. Now it is very difficult to imagine how God can view anything other than as it is in itself, or how a really unjust man can be accepted as just by an omniscient deity. If we would do justice to divine omniscience, no alternative remains but to suppose that what is looked upon by man as sin is really none in the eyes of God and is a mere consequence of human finiteness. And in this way we can comprehend the security which is felt in the faith in a mere outward justification. That something of this sort lies concealed in the background of the minds of those who adopt this view of justification is strongly confirmed by the second fact to which we must now draw attention. The act of justification and the whole work of regeneration are represented as the doing of God alone. Now, it must afford ample matter for astonishment that God, who is here the exclusive agent, should not entirely pervade his own work and extirpate the very roots of sin and exert his unshackled might in all its splendor. Man, whose conduct is entirely passive during this process of justification, could yet be entirely transformed. Wherefore does not this change occur? We are compelled to recur to the same thought which we expressed above, though in a somewhat altered form, to wit, that sin is an essential condition in the original constitution of man, and being thus necessary, is therefore not imputed to us by God for the observation of Calvin, who seems to have felt the revolting nature of the theory that God is the exclusive agent in regeneration without being withal the thorough agent. The observation of Calvin that this defective influence was grounded in the motive of God to be able to summon before his tribunal men at every moment of their lives cannot seriously satisfy anyone. Calvin should have called to his aid his absolute necessity of all occurrences, as an explanation ready at hand. This necessity of sinning in the present stage of human existence is, then, the true ground of this theory, and of the possibility of that profound tranquility in a state of continued sinfulness, though such never entered into the minds of the reformers at least no other speculative notion of the Protestant account of original sin, considered in connection with the doctrine of justification, can be established. Luther, accordingly, did not express himself well when he said, Original sin is a part of man's essence. He should have said, Sin cleaves necessarily to the essence of man. Thus did the dogmatic declensions of Luther and Calvin against human freedom meet the vengeance due to them. And though they had so much enlarged on the magnitude of sin, yet, in consequence of the relation to man wherein they placed the deity, they were, at last, compelled, in despite of themselves, to deny the very existence of sin. What they taught as the origin of evil manifests itself again in this manner, and even in the Lutheran system the consequences of that doctrine remain though the doctrine itself the Lutherans rejected. It is far otherwise, as we have above said, in the Catholic Church, because she clings so firmly and with such a bleeding heart to the truth that it is only in freedom that the ultimate cause of sin is to be sought for. For this very reason, she can, she must, likewise maintain a real redemption from sin. End of section 22.